BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. President Trump told the United Nations yesterday that the U.S. is officially withdrawing from the World Health Organization effective a year from now. The announcement comes as the U.S. struggles to contain the spread of coronavirus and as Trump continues to blame the WHO for covering up China's early missteps. Then the Supreme Court handed down two big rulings today on religious freedom, and we'll check in with UC Hastings' David Levine on the decisions which deal with employment discrimination and birth control. That's all next after this news. Welcome to this morning's Forum program. I'm Michael Krasny. The Trump administration officially informed the United Nations yesterday that the United States is withdrawing from the World Health Organization, effective July 6, 2021. President Trump first announced that he planned to halt funding to the WHO back in April, criticizing its China-centric response to the coronavirus pandemic. The withdrawal comes as the United States nears 3 million reported coronavirus cases and as global COVID-related deaths top uh, 540,000. And we're going to discuss what led to the U.S.'s decision, as well as the financial and global public health implications of its withdrawal. Joining us is Naomi Grimley, global affairs correspondent for the BBC. And welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Good to be here. Also want to welcome Kelly Lee, who is a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance for Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. She was involved in studies on WHO reform during the 1990s, and she co-founded the WHO Collaborating Center on Global Change and health, and she chaired the WHO Resource Group on Globalization, Trade, and Health, and she's also the author of 13 books, including one about the origins and evolution of the WHO. So welcome, Kelly Lee. Good morning, Michael. Nice to be here. Good to have you with us, and with all of your experience with the WHO, I've got to ask you what you see, really, the implications of this decision are, is particularly when we take in a light of what the WHO does, and particularly relevant to global and public health implications. There are huge implications. Um, the U.S., of course, is the largest donor to WHO, so the, the funding cut is going to really hurt. Um, and, you know, at a time when we're in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, this timing couldn't be worse. Um, so there's the financial side. There's also the scientific side. There's huge efforts going on to coordinate the development of vaccines, development of treatments, to get PPE supplies to the developing world, all sorts of things going on at the moment. WHO is a really full plate. 
And so having to deal with this, um, this issue, this membership issue now in the middle of a pandemic is, is really bad timing. Does this have to be approved by the U.S. Congress, though, in terms of the budget money? I, I thought it was. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. The, but my understanding was that it had to be approved. Any withdrawal from an international treaty has to go through Congress. And I think there's a one-year waiting period as well. So we're not quite there yet, but certainly the letter was delivered, I believe, yesterday to withdraw. And let me uh, go, if I could, to you, Naomi Grimley, because uh, the sense is the United States has made this decision under President Trump because uh, of the slowness to declare a global health emergency by the WHO and the, shall we say, too generous uh, support of China's handling of the outbreak and China's lack of information, really, uh, as it has been described and indicted. Uh, let's let's take that apart for a, a moment. And uh, how is it playing, for example, throughout uh, not only America's allies, where you are in the UK and throughout Europe, but generally? Well, there is definitely a geopolitical angle to this story. Let me read to you what Tom Tugendhat says. He's the MP that leads the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House of Commons. He says many will now see the US as less reliable, diminishing its influence. You may not like how things are going while you're at the table, but leaving it won't make it better. So there's very much, uh, this is very much being seen by uh, Parliament and I think by the government, although they're a bit more diplomatic in public, as, you know, the US being more isolationist. I think there's also a view in the British media that uh, President Trump is doing this in a way to deflect attention from his own record in handling what is clearly a worsening crisis in the United States itself. What about Trump's blaming the WHO actually for hampering his early efforts to respond to the pandemic? Uh, there's certainly information that has emerged about this so-called slow U.S. response, I think appropriately called slow U.S. response, because Peter Navarro, who was one of the presidential advisors, actually uh, handed him a memo back in January, uh, the end of January, saying, you know, this is a serious pandemic and we have to act quickly. And the president was still talking very positively about ameliorating the, uh, the pandemic. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about uh, the president shifting the blame uh, and shifting the blame largely to the WHO. Yes, I think there is this, this sense that he is trying to deflect the blame because he knows, particularly with an election coming up, uh, that this crisis is extremely serious for him and could possibly end his run in the White House. Of course, uh, you know, this pandemic has got so large because a lot of countries and a lot of organisations failed to act when they should have done. And I suppose President Trump might be on slightly safer ground when it comes to discussing whether, you know, the WHO sh should have been tougher with sh China. Should they have insisted on having officials there a bit sooner to really see what was going on in Wuhan? And, you know, should there have been a more rigorous uh, examination of the data coming out? Of course, what the WHO officials would say is, well, we, we have to be diplomatic and we, were, we can only really go on what uh, member countries tell us at the time. And uh, Naomi Grimley, again, is Global Affairs Correspondent for the BBC. Kelly Lee is Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance with Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. And Kelly Lee, back to you. Um, we're talking about the WHO in this kind of monolithic way, but it's many sovereign states, about 194 nations involved. So when decisions are made and when blame is cast and so forth, uh, how does that break down as you see it? 
Yes, when WHO was created in 1948, it was created as a member state organization. And basically that means that it serves its 194 members. It doesn't have supranational authority above those states. So what it does is basically, you know, gather the, the views of those states at a World Health Assembly, they create a program of work. And then if you look at the constitution, you see all sorts of verbs like recommend, encourage, support. You don't see, you know, decide and compel those kind of verbs, which means that they don't have authority to tell countries what to do. They're there to coordinate and to, um, uh, to direct and to try and, you know, get the countries to cooperate together. And that means that really it, it doesn't have the, the authority to, to walk into China, for example, and demand data to be handed over. It has to work through diplomatic means. It has to work through, you know, really cooperation. And that's a very limited and perhaps, you know, toothless uh, kind of status to have. And there, so that, there's an issue about, you know, whether it needs to be given um, more teeth. Yeah, and uh, we can talk about the teeth as we move along here, but I want to go back to Naomi Grimsley for a moment to talk about the fact that the United States, uh, is, in some respects, is being blamed for being too American-centric as opposed to the blame of the WHO being China-centric, isn't it, within the WHO by many of the natured states? Yes, I mean, there's certainly this feeling that you get in Europe that America first has now uh, infected, if you like, uh, that the sort of global health uh, geopolitics. So, for example, when it comes to finding a vaccine, uh, all European countries, along with Canada, Australia, Japan, have agreed that they really need to pull resources, both to make sure that they're backing enough of the vaccine candidates and also to make sure that when an, a vaccine is available, it, it can be rolled out across the world so that it's not just given to one particular country first. Now, of course, we've already seen with the um, you know, worries over remdesivir that the US has bought up a lot of the stocks of that for the next three months, leaving countries uh, across the world without it. So I think there's this worry that, you know, under the Trump administration, it is just harder to solve a global crisis. And the UN would say that until you've eliminated coronavirus everywhere, it could quite simply just circle back around the globe and that nowhere is safe until everywhere is safe. Well, fact of the matter is, Kelly Lee, I think we can safely say that the WHO is political, though it wants to be seen as medical and scientific. Yes, and I know I've heard many times how, you know, if only we could get the politics out of WHO, everything would be all right. It's a UN organization. It's not an academy of science. So the politics is interwoven within the DNA of WHO. And so it has to balance this role of being the scientific um, coordinating body but also mediating among 194 very different member states and their interests. They're serving a very diverse clientele and you know, trying to get people to work together is a political task. So it would be um, you know, really uh, misguided to think that you could take the politics out of WHO. What, you, what we need is good politics. We need leadership. We need you know, the mobilization of resources during times of emergencies. What we don't need is bad politics when you have divisiveness and really uh, point scoring on a scale that we've seen so far. U.S. withdrawing, though, uh, Kelly Lee, can mean uh, tantamount to meaning, really. They'd be cut out of conversations on coronavirus uh, with respect to vaccine development, with respect to 
well, for that matter, the next emerging threat, whatever that may be. That's right. Um, you know, it, it's it's really short sighted because um, WHO is involved in a, all sorts of coordinating efforts, as I said before, to create uh, new vaccines, new treatments through these solidarity trials. And scientists around the world have been working very hard together, sharing data, sharing ideas, pooling, you know, the best brains out there to try and quickly develop this vaccine. So if the U.S. pulls out, you know, it's really unclear. Um, how it will contribute, but also how it will benefit. And also, a lot of I'm sorry, oh, I was just going to say also could cost lives too, of course. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as Naomi was saying, you know, the sooner we get this vaccine and share it globally, the better off all of us will be. This should be a global public good and not something um, that country should be hoarding. Should also mention that I believe it would hurt ongoing initiatives in the developing world. So there are a lot of implications from this. And there's also the ongoing debate, Naomi, I'm going to go to you on this, about uh, uh, the WHO and how it stands on uh, uh, larger droplets uh, versus aerosol. Can you outline that for our listeners? Yes, well, again, one of the criticisms of the WHO from, from many people, not just um, from America, is that it's been behind, it's been too sluggish, it's been behind the curve on certain things. So for example, it was late to endorse masks. And uh, some scientists have been saying for a long time that coronavirus is airborne, and it's been very reluctant to embrace that idea. Now, yesterday, it did sort of seem to, to come round a bit more to that point of view. Uh, but that would, if it does finally end up saying that it's airborne, that might have to mean that several other things have to change. For example, at the moment, the World Health Organization simply argues there should be one meter self-distancing between people, whereas, of course, in the States, it's six feet. And uh, until recently in the UK, it's been two meters. So that's another example of where, uh, you know, some would would say, you know, even in, in very sort of from very expert positions would say that the WHO um, perhaps has been a bit slow to pick up on some of the scientific evidence around this disease. Well, there are 239 scientists who came forward from 32 countries who said the evidence is there. But at this point, it seems like the WHA is in a bit of a holding pattern. I want to invite our listeners to join this conversation. What are your thoughts about the World Health Organization withdrawal by the Trump administration? And if you have questions for our guests, we certainly welcome your involvement in the program as well. You can join us toll free now at 866-733-6786. The number again for your calls 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email questions to forum at kqed.org. Naomi, we've only got a minute left with you. Where do you see this going? Well, I think there is still long term going to be a lot of criticism of the WHO. Remember, other nations such as Australia have said there do, does need to be a, a proper investigation into what went wrong, why uh, coronavirus wasn't picked up as a big problem earlier. But also, I think, you know, the the removal of that funding, that key amount of funding, 400 million pounds, dollars, sorry, a year from the US to the WHO will have massive consequences when it comes to making sure that middle and low income uh, countries are able to to weather the next few waves of this until we find a vaccine. Naomi Grimley, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Forum. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Naomi Grimley is global affairs correspondent for the BBC. And uh, 
We're talking about money for a moment. Kelly Lee, back to you. Kelly Lee's Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance with Simon Fraser University in British Columbia with uh, a lot of history and writing about the WHO. Uh, all this, I'd like you to define a little bit why critics are calling out WHO's response to China's handling of the pandemic as being China-centric, uh, that kind of posture, because actually the United States uh, amount of money was $450 million. Uh, China's only $40 million. That's right. And, you know, we've, we've heard all the allegations um, and we're and we know that there's going to be an investigation after the pandemic is behind us. So we'll find out, you know, what exactly uh, the Trump administration are talking about, uh, what information was available before um, December 31st, when the Chinese government officially um, informed WHO of the first cases. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we should have thorough investigation for, for sure. Um, and I, what, what I think is really important is that we have to recognize that if any country has been heavily influential in WHO, it's actually been the United States. Its funding is about 15 to 20% of the, of the organization's uh, total budget. Um, there are hundreds of American scientists, technicians, um, staff who work for WHO around the world. Um, Washington hosts uh, a regional office of WHO, and there's about 82 U uh, WHO collaborating centers based in the US. Um, there's, there's lots of links, and these are all very positive. I'm not saying that, you know, these are, these are bad links, but it's, it, it's, it's hard for me to understand how um, the Trump administration could somehow say that WHO is a Chinese-dominated organization. Historically, that has not been the case. Of course, China is rising in influence globally, we know that, um, starting to throw its weight around uh, for good or bad. And we, you know, we should, of course, be watching that. But to, to say that WHO is somehow dominated, I haven't, I scratch my head, I have to say, Michael, about that accusation. Well, our topic is the WHO and the exit from it, uh, declared by the pre President of the United States. Uh, Senator Bob Menendez, uh, of New Jersey says this will leave Americans sick and alone. On the other hand, Representative James Comer from Kentucky, who's on the House Oversight Committee, said it's the right decision. And uh, Vice President Biden, who's running, of course, for president on the Democratic ticket, said he would immediately rejoin the WHO. If you have some thoughts or feelings about this, indeed, we invite your calls and emails, and you can join us toll free, 866-733-6786. Again, is the number to call. 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And let me read a tweet from Eric, who says, leadership is working to improve the WHO, not cut and run when you don't like how things are going. This is just removing ourselves from the conversation, plunging the U.S. into darkness. Another listener, Kathy, writes, what can the average caring citizen do about this? I think that leaving the WHO is short-sighted and a disaster for many reasons, scientific, political, and for our image in the world. Whatever that is left, what do I do? Some thoughts on that from you, Kathy Lee, Kelly Lee, excuse me, in terms of individual citizens and what they can do? Yeah, so that's really heartening to hear that, um, you know, that there's, there's an understanding that you know, WHO is not a perfect organization, but that we should be in it to improve it and strengthen it. Um, I think, you know, what happens in November is going to be really important. Um, I'm not an American citizen, so I don't want to say too much about that. But I think what happens in November is going to really influence how 
um, America goes forward as, as part of the global community or as an isolated country. And you know, I, as a Canadian citizen, would love to, um, you know, to to see the U.S. continue its leadership role in the world. We need the United States in the UN system. Um, so I think citizens need to get informed about this issue. There's a lot of uh, rhetoric being thrown around, and listening to this program, um, reading up on the history of WHO is really important. And recognizing that we created it as, as people, you know, as countries, we created the organization to do what it does. We've given it limited powers. We've, we've actually starved it of resources. And so if we want it to be better, we need to get together across countries and make it better. And so leaving it on the side of the road is not the way forward. Um, all of us need a strong WHO. We need a better WHO. And we can only do this if we work together. Well, can you talk about what that would, uh, or maybe what you envision? I was reading an interview you did where you were talking about menus and iPads and using some good metaphors, computers and so forth. But you you need a <laughs> lot. You have a lot to build on here, and the the consequences are certainly weighty. What would you envision? Yeah, there's a number of things that WHO could do um, once this is all over. And you know, reform has been a constant. Uh, theme in WHO, I have to say, every time there's a, a new director general, they introduce a reform program. So this keeps me busy um, studying what, what's going on. I think there are some key things. One is that the mandate is really, really broad. And when it was created, it was envisioned as this very ambitious organization that would do everything and, and anything to do with health, from arthritis to zoonotic diseases, as I often say. And that's hard for an organization that has very limited resources. So there may be some reflection on how it could trim, um, I'd compare it to a restaurant with you know, a menu that was just far too big. And we need to focus on its signature dishes, um, you know, what it does best and what is most needed in the world. So that needs to be trimmed down. And um, you know, we have to have a, a conversation about what that is. It may be outbreaks, it may be pandemics, because that, that is a very truly global event. Um, the other thing is the budget. So WHO is funded by a couple of pots of money. One is uh, an assessed contribution, which member states pay as a kind of membership fee based on the size of the country and the wealth of the country. So this is why the US contributes so much uh, funds to WHO. The other is voluntary contributions, and that comes from a, a range of sources, governments, charitable foundations, sometimes individual citizens, and those tend to be earmarked for specific purposes. So the, the donors really you know, uh, control that money. That money is about 70 to 75% of WHO's budget. So that makes it very difficult to, for, for the organization to act strategically to act in a kind of unified way because 75% of its budget is not under its control. So something has to be done there to give it more core resources so it can invest in things like uh, pandemic preparedness, uh, intelligence gathering for epidemics. As long as you're talking about money, uh, forgive me, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of voluntary contributions that have to be accounted for in different ways. They seem to be dispensed uh, to those who have the most muscle or you know, some kind of system at least of a hierarchy that perhaps needs to be broken down? Yeah, there's a number of ways. So if, if, if donors are able to control that money, then they say, okay, I want it for malaria control, but not polio eradication. And I want it to go in this country, but not that country. It's very, very uh, messy trying to run an organization where you're just running around trying to serve all the donors. So there needs to be a way, and there is a way, there's the World Health Assembly, which creates a program of work every year 
And you know, countries need to agree that by, um, and especially the donors need to agree that by doing this kind of thing, by earmarking their donations, they're going to be really undermining the core of the organization. So there might be a levy, you know, kind of like a. Right, forgive me, Kelly. We're coming up on a break, and I just want to give the number again. If you'd like to join us, it's eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. We're talking about United States withdrawing from. Uh, the WHO and the United States, by the way, has not really actually been providing leadership with COVID-19 like it did with AIDS and Ebola and tsunamis and earthquakes. It's a whole other issue. We'll continue. Stay tuned. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the United States withdrawing from the World Health Organization. And Sean writes, this plan withdrawal, it's a year from now, is all about election year politics. Trump wants and needs to blame others for our COVID numbers. WHO is just another target. Let me bring a caller on. And Tina, that's you. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to state that Trump himself uh, is a type of person who thinks that if he has money, he can just take away the money to run what he to get things done his way. You know, that's what he's doing. He's removing the American um, portion of the money to the WHO. Then he's going to say, well, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to withdraw. That doesn't solve any problems. And that's the type, the mentality he, he takes, is that I have power because of money. You're going to do what I want to do. The Republicans, on the other hand, they're more Republican there than they are American. They care more about their policies than they care about bringing everybody to the table and making sure we're all surviving. And they have a real big hand in the deaths that have come forward from this COVID-19 thing. People are sitting in their houses scared and looking for good leadership, and they're sitting up here stoking violence and animosity amongst their own people. They're almost pushing us to the brink of civil war. If you watch social media, we're basically having a virtual civil war right now. So how are we going to come together as a country? We can't even come together over death. People are dying. Elderly people are at risk. Tina, I thank you for the call. I'm glad glad you you weighed in here and uh, appreciate hearing from you. I'm also going to ask our guest, Kelly Lee, if she could respond to another listener, Seth, who wants to know, would a Biden victory in fulfillment of his promise to rejoin WHO eliminate any setbacks from withdrawal? Now, as we said earlier, some of this depends on congressional approval. That's up in the air because they have the purse strings. But the withdrawal certainly has... uh, as we said earlier in this segment, uh, a lot of consequences to it and a lot of implications to it. Your thoughts on that, Kelly Lee? There, there are a lot of consequences. I mean, if WHO, um, you know, goes forward without uh, the U.S., it, it is a much weaker organization, and a lot of the the work that it does really depends on U.S. involvement. We have just have to look back at the history of of organizations where the U.S. has not been a member. You know, the League of Nations had a health organization, and we know how that went. Yeah, but I think the listener is asking, you know, uh, what this means between now and November. I mean, uh, the withdrawal, the impact of the withdrawal. If Biden is elected, well, you've got till January uh, when he mm-hmm. actually would take over. But uh, how much is the United States hurt by just this limbo that we're in? Yes. I mean, th- thanks for that clarification. Um, well, the work with WHO is going to go on. And if the U.S. is not part of that, um, we'll, you know, it, it may not have the... Um, the ability to call on the technical resources. So every day you, you'll see the daily briefings that WHO puts out. That actually is the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in the organization in Geneva. There's a lot of data collection, intelligence, um, sharing. And, and so basically what the US's uh, Trump administration is doing is really stepping out of that when it really does need that information, whether it's scientific or whether it's you know looking at how the outbreaks are occurring in other countries. These are really important 
data sources. And so it, thumbing your nose at those, those things is just really, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it will impact on how well um, public health officials will be able to fight the pandemic at home, by, um, certainly will be the case. I want to read another listener email. Peter writes, it's now apparent that the WHO is subject to political influence by the many participating governments. This is similar to the IPCC, whose findings have been understated for decades by governments like Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the U.S., who don't want to alarm the public about global warming. And Pete tweets, this is not so much about the WHO. It is about Trump's incompetence and his need to deflect blame. It's about his destructive pathology, which hopefully we as a nation are coming to understand. And let me get Prashant on. Prashant, join us. You're on. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, first of all, I, I, I completely disagree with the uh, decision to withdraw from WHO. I think it's a really important uh, uh, part of uh, a global uh, research and scientific effort that happens uh, to um, first understand and then try to control the pandemics. Uh, it's an important work that should happen. But I think that's a reflection of uh, where America uh, is going. It's more inward focus under the current administration, uh, not just in, the, in this WHO, but in many different areas of uh, uh, American uh, international policies, right? So, the, so but, but beyond that, my question really is how impartial or how independent WHO really is with or without American support. Uh, for example, it's not clear uh, exactly what happened in Wuhan. And back when the pandemic first started and information started coming out, um, again, I, I'm not sure if it was completely transparent and uh, it was WHO's job to go out there and, and educate the entire world on what, what's happening. The, there were continuous flights from Wuhan to other parts of China. Uh, it's very hard to believe that the... Um, pandemic didn't spread in other parts of China, but uh, what, we are, what we are being told is that it was contained in Wuhan and didn't go to Beijing, didn't go to Shenzhen or South China. There are just no numbers. There's no transparency. Yeah, Prashant, I thank you for that. That's, that. The, that's been a serious criticism of WHO all along, and I'd like to hear what you have to say on that, Kelly Lee. Thanks, Prashant. Yeah, thanks, Prashant, for that. And, you, you know, this is the, the focus of this um, international investigation that will happen and I, I think everybody wants to know step by step what happened during the beginning of this pandemic before December 31st um, because not not to necessarily you know uncover any conspiracies but really to prevent future outbreaks and if things didn't happen the way they shouldn't then we, we need to know about that um, it's important though to distinguish between what scientists did in China which did you know report these cases quite early and then what the government did. So we need to separate those out and, and not tar everyone with the same brush in, in China. There were efforts by Chinese scientists and doctors to get this information out, why it didn't get out, at what level of government it was, you know, it, there, there were bottlenecks. We shall have to see. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the whole, um, every, everything is a conspiracy or everything is somehow deliberate. There, there may have been shortcomings in reporting processes, there may well have been political uh, intentions to sort of hush hush these things. And there, you know, we know countries in the past have not been um, um, forthcoming in information, not just China, but other countries as well in terms of outbreaks. So we need to really develop a system where we can find out beyond just government's reporting, but um, th that we can somehow find this information uh, even when there are roadblocks. Well, certainly there seem 
at the worst, uh, just bad lack of transparency uh, from China and lack of responsibility and responsiveness from China. But the role of the WHO in terms of what may have been political or what may have had to do with the money they were getting from China and so forth remains, as you suggested, uh, to be investigated. Let me get another caller on here. Brent joins us. Brent, welcome. Hi, Michael. How are you guys doing today? Hi, um, I just... Hey, sorry, I think a little bit of a delay. Um, I know you guys are short on time, but I know a couple of callers have commented about the fact that, um, you know, the WHO, it is, I think it's worth remembering that it is part, you know, of a U.N. organization, and, or it is a U.N. organization, but there also has been a lot of corruption within the U.N. And the U.S., you know, even though I know a lot of people out there uh, hate Trump, and I'm not happy with the decision either, but I think a lot of people need to remember that the U.S. does throw its dollars around um, to get other countries, whether it's foreign policy um, to kind of, you know, look uh, in the best interest, uh, not just of the U.S., but oftentimes their, their interest of the, of the world, too. So I don't think that's, you know, I don't agree with the decision, but I don't think it's uncommon to have the U.S. Uh, kind of use its, um, use its money, whether it's pulling in, uh, pulling out, rather, or putting in money to, um, to influence uh, geopolitical decisions. Brent, I thank you for that call. Glad you got your opinion in there. And uh, we're going to have to say goodbye to you, Kelly Lee, I'm afraid, but so good to have you with us. I much appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation, Michael. Best wishes. Kelly Lee, again, is Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance for Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.